interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. So we have some opportunity now to ask a question or two. Yeah, I'm Doug Stauffer. Uh, I don't what do you want to know. <laughs> and you're married to somebody beside you there? I'm married to someone beside me, yep. Okay. Um, hey, which church are you part of? Bethel Grove. Bethel Grove, okay. Yeah. You said something about the guy who was in a cubicle on Wall Street and left to start uh, Tree Houses. Tree House Corporation. Yeah. This isn't so much a question, but I, uh, you would agree that working in a cubicle on Wall Street crunching numbers is equally sacramental as I would, anything actually. else. I would, actually. Yeah. Because Wall Street takes a lot of dumping on. And oh, I do, are, actually. You know, yeah. That's no pejorative comment. It was simply his own pilgrimage vocationally. He wanted to go back home, I think, eventually, and he... We're back to Austin after a while. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay, someone here? In fact, my friend who was the IT&T CEO said to me along the way in the last year, he said, mostly when the pastors preach, as I hear them, they have a fundamental cursing of Wall Street. Uh, he says, I've lived my life there, and that never, never seems to be fair to me because um, there's good work that has to happen there for all of us to flourish. And so there needs to be more of a call to, to a good sense, a healthy sense, a right sense of vocation, rather than somehow it always being a curse. Uh, that's his comment, and it's what I believe, too. So. Oh, hi. And you uh, are? Uh, my name's Paul. How are you doing? <laughs> good. Um, I had a question. I, I know, like with a lot of churches I've seen, there seems to be an emphasis, and I think this is kind of natural in a lot of ways, but... There's an emphasis towards, you know, uh, the notion of growing a healthy church, meaning let's get more people into that building, you know, and get them in there more days a week, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and do you see, I, I don't know, I guess what I'm wondering is, are you suggesting something different? I mean, uh, maybe uh, a different approach to the spiritual life? I mean, I, I, I'd like to know. Mm-hmm. This is more of a long walk conversation, I think, isn't it? Um, I think there has to be a reality, both personally and institutionally, of inward and outward journey. Um, so that needs to be true of me as a, as a man, as a human being, as a, one person. I need to have a lively inward journey of deepening devotion to God even as I keep alive also the sense of outward calling to care about the world in God's name. I think that has to be true of the church as well. Um, There has to be somehow a sense of building internally a journey inward as a life of a people of God coming together in worship to God, even as we remember that that isn't the whole point. Um, There's a, a rhythm here, and there's a rhythm of Sabbath and then six days and Sabbath and six days, and Sabbath and six days. We worship and we work. We worship and we work. Or as the uh, Benedictines put it, you know, we pray and we work, we pray and we work, ora e labora, uh, week after week, day by day. Um, I think that when we get that off sometimes, that, you know, it is because we, 
You know, again, you know, you guys in this place here seem to me to have a healthier vision here, though I don't know the details of your lives, really. But even you do this together, it seems to me to be healthier than not. You know, where you're taking a, a question like this, plant it in the city of Ithaca in the context of the communities of Cornell and, and uh, Ithaca College and saying, you know, we're wanting to take up these harder questions of how we're going to live between two worlds. You know, so I honor that and I see that, though I don't know the details how it all works out. But I'm just guessing, you know, that, you know, that maybe your experience is something like what I hear from a lot of people as I listen to people around, around as I get around, that... Um, the sense that you know that the church is about the church. Uh, I mean, the church really is the church at worship and then at work. I mean, it's always both at the same time. Um, and uh, I'll give you a little story about all this. I've got some friends who were chiefs of staff on Capitol Hill for a long time. Um, if provosts, you know, sort of run universities. Um, now, chiefs of staff run the offices of members of Congress. Uh, it isn't that the members are nothings or nobodies. That's not true at all, really. But they have their own things to do. But the chiefs of staff actually make sure things happen and get done. And they make the decisions. And surprising, surprising it might be to you, you could be on the little tram going from the Senate to the Capitol building on a Tuesday morning, and you find a chief of staff sitting next to the member of the Senate saying, you need to vote this way, and this is why. Um, uh, that may surprise you, but that's really how it works. Um, and uh, um, so, my chief of staff friends would, were meeting for like 15 years on Friday mornings for for a sort of a strange group in some ways. Um, they're all part of churches like yours, healthy churches where the Bible was preached, God was loved. That was a part of life rhythmically, week by week, for them. They didn't need to have a church on Capitol Hill. They needed a group where they could think through the questions of political responsibility because that really was hard work for them because there were hard questions about how we're going to work this out in the context of our work. So they would read articles from journals. They would read books together. They would have people come in sometimes to talk to them about their work. They would have, just to give you, you know, some sense of the range of people, I mean, I would sometimes, but Bono would sometimes coming through the Capitol building, or Tom Wolfe, the novelist, would come through sometimes, and they would have a, a morning with him. Um, people who would, in some ways, stimulate their thinking about questions of public life and its public policy implications. Fifteen years of doing this, they had this idea one day, let's invite our pastors to come, just to have lunch with us someday, and just to sort of hear what we're trying to do and pray for us, really. Uh, these were good churches with good people pastoring these people. None of the pastors were able to come. Um, and one of these persons, who was not a cynical person by disposition, but he said to me, you know, I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I'd said to my pastor, I've got an extra Tuesday night every week to give to you, what can I do for you? He would have said, great, that's what I've been looking for for years from you. I want you on Tuesday nights. Um, but the idea that somehow the pastor might be interested actually in the work he was doing just seemed beyond the pale, actually, in the actual concreteness of his work. Pastors get drawn in, you know, to personal crises at work or shames or failures or, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, moments in people's lives, actually. I know that happens in pastoral visitations and work. I'm not sure it happens very often where people actually visit people and actually get to know the questions which are theirs. 
the difficulties, the challenges which are there. It's somewhat like my friend was saying to me, who's the retired CEO, saying, I never really heard a sermon where I thought the pastor thought about somebody like me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe this is a related question. Uh, how does the kingdom of God conceptual in today's world fit into what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how does that, is there a tension between that and what we call church? Yeah. I think there has to be a tension. Um, we are living in this now but not yet world. It's this already but not yet time in history. So eschatologically speaking, I mean, I do believe in this grand meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We'll talk more about that in the next, in the next session, really. But that's the story I see the Bible telling. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Um, so this stretch taut as we are between redemption and consummation makes it be that this now but not yet. Christ has come to make all things be new, and yet, and yet, and yet, we all groan as creation still groans, yearning, waiting for someday, someday. Really. So there is a tension in that. I'm not sure we ever, I know we're never outside of that tension until Jesus comes back again. I am content to live with images like signposts. So for my friend Hans and his hamburgers, I say to him, well, eschatological hamburger, Hans, good for you, really. It's a signpost of the way some th- things will someday be. Good for you. Yeah. Not perfectly done. He sweats and he doesn't sleep some nights and he worries and it's hard work to grow a company. You know, really, really hard work to grow a company. And he makes mistakes and he hurts people along the way and we talk about it afterwards. And you know, uh, but you know, it's a signpost. I think in terms of the kingdom and how I understand the kingdom in this life, it's a signpost really. I do love the poetry and the apologetics as well as the music of Bono. And he says about himself, I write music. I'm a musician. I just hope that when the day is all done, I've been able to tear a little corner off the darkness. And I've thought about my own life thinking, well, if I get any say in my tombstone, probably I won't. Um, but I would be glad for whoever decides to, you know, he tore a little corner off the darkness. Uh, yes? This is the last one. Okay. No pressure. <laughs> There's a weight upon you here. Tim Tebowing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have such mixed emotions. Do you? Me too. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's <laughs> maybe that's it. <laughs> no, I mean I I completely, completely, and deeply honor this person, my wife, who loves me a lot. Uh, um, for several years now, from the University of Florida all the way through the Broncos this past season, if ever I would say, your guy's playing, you know, she'd run downstairs, which is where our TV is, and she'd say, right now? You know, and I don't know why it happened, but even when he was still at the University of Florida, she sort of got drawn into this guy, Tim Tebow. You know, and I mean, she does, she's not somebody who in any kind of way at all despises football. I mean, she's not that kind of person, really. But you know, it's, not, it's more than just humoring me. I mean, there's something about this guy's vision and his life that kind of drew her in. And she would be, say, it's, she would say, it's not true that I think about him like my son. She would not say that, you know. But she has affection for him in a strange kind of a way. Um, this past season was strange, wasn't it? 
watching Tim Tebow and the Tebowing phenomena. Um, I think for me, the most interesting part was just reading the cultural commentary about it, because this was the best columnist writing in the sports pages began to write about this. Sally Jenkins from the Washington Post wrote a surprising article about Tim Tebow. I mean, if you were interested, it's remarkably good, really. Um, Rick Riley, writing for ESPN, the guy used to write the back page column in Sports Illustrated, had a remarkable article about Tim Tebow. And most of these were about, this is a person who is what he says. And you may kind of be put off by, you know, this or that, but you know, get over it, was the, basically the words of these sports columnists. Because you know, there's integrity in this guy's life. He is, he is what he talks about. Um, I find myself thinking if I was his teacher and friend, I probably would ask him along the way, um, do you have to say your creedal convictions every time you get up to speak? Because uh, that was that what we're asking of each other. Um, I don't ask that of my friend Hans and his hamburgers. You know? I don't think he's being unfaithful to the gospel in that. Um, um, and I think that, you know, sometimes, somewhere, and I think we, we do have paradigms where we don't really have access to theological visions like common grace for the common good. Um, I have a relation with a, a guy who's a real rock star, actually. lives in, in Denver also. Uh, maybe you know the music of the, of the group The Fray. Some of you would, at least, in the room here. <clears throat> but it's been very big music in the world the last few years. And I've had kind of a teaching role to the guy who's the lead singer in the band for a while. And they finally sold out the Red Rocks Amphitheater four nights in a row a couple of summers ago. Uh, it was a big, big deal for the Denver band finally made global good, you know. And they sold out the big amphitheater in town four nights in a row. It was big news for Denver and for the fray. Uh, if you don't know their music, it's How to Save a Life or, you know, You Found Me or things like that. Um, and... Uh, but Isaac and I were talking one day, and he said that some of the elders in his life were saying to him, Isaac, the whole reason you have gained this celebrity and this platform is to give testimony to Jesus when the concert's over. So don't you dare leave the concert t- you know, tomorrow night without actually saying, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's the whole reason you are a musician. Don't you understand that, really? So Isaac and I talked that through for quite a while, really, of, as if, you know, is that the point of this? Is that what this is about? I mean, is there is there something called common grace for the common good? Um, I mean, he's been a, a student like most musicians like him of Bono's and U2's, and talking about Bono a little bit in there, and thinking so. How do you how do you hear when Bono and his boys are singing "How Long, How Long, O Lord," <clears throat> with people raising their plastic cups of Coors overhead and singing these songs of Zion? And how does it happen night by night? Really, you think, what'd you do, Bono? How did you do this, really? You know. Um, so there's some way, actually, of being faithful to the gospel, of singing songs which everyone can understand and being drawn in. Um, so I think if I was a friend, which I'm not, of Tim's, I would say, let's just kind of talk about some of this together a little bit as you grow into your own sense of calling. You know, good for you. I'm proud of you. I'm glad for you. When he made that final overtime touchdown pass against the Steelers, I thought, you didn't do that, did you? That was incredible, really. Good for you, Tim Tebow and Denver Broncos. I mean, I was glad and proud, and I'm mostly that, even though I have questions, too. I just want to say, can I just, uh, talking about Bono, I mean, I've always loved Bono, and consequently my kids love him, uh-huh. but then I see him on the awards using the S-word. Uh-huh, I know. Uh, 
how do we It's a good question, and I know, uh, I know he struggles with all those things, too. But you need to know this, too, about him. <clears throat> I've <clears throat> been in concerts of you two over the years, and I've stood next to a guy who is their chaplain, uh, um, who's an Anglican priest from Dublin who they've known since they were 17-year-old boys, really. And they, he travels with them on tour. And this would surprise you, maybe, to know this, but actually he travels with them, and he prays with them day by day on tour, does Bible studies with them day by day on tour. He walks through the arenas where they're going to give their concerts, you know, in the afternoon before the concert, and prays for a work of the Holy Spirit and power to be done that night as the concert happens. You know, I watched him sort of watching the audience. I said, what are you doing, Jack? And he said, well, I'm just gauging the spiritual responsiveness to the songs tonight. I thought, really? That's a lot of interesting work, actually. Um, uh, my best... A self-assessment is this. Uh, I'm a clay-footed man. And I have the same tensions as you do. We're going to take a break, uh, an opportunity to stretch your legs, get a drink, use the restroom. But the...